Hi, everyone. Welcome to White Coats of the Round Table, a healthcare podcast focused on career development, burnout prevention, and non-clinical paths. I'm Mike Asbeck, and I'm joined, as always, by John McDonald, and this time in the flesh. No, I am. And, and we're not on a couch this time in your office. That's true. That was awkward. Yeah. yeah. We're going to start talking about my mom, and yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the couch will do that. <laughs> so today we've got a really exciting episode. Today we've got Sarah coming on, and we're going to maybe circle back around to a discussion regarding MSL. This is a job that consistently ranks as a top non-clinical job for healthcare professionals, and we want to make sure that we're continuing to provide resources for people that may want to pursue this. And Sarah, I'm actually going to turn it right over to you, and I'll let you do a little bit of your own intro because I am not a creative person, and I want to make sure I don't miss anything. So without further ado, Sarah, thank you for coming on the show. And why don't you give the audience a little bit of an intro about your background and what you do? Yeah, well, thank you both for having me. It's a pleasure to come on. And I, you know, I am a pharmacist by training as well. So I'm especially thrilled to be a part of this podcast. Great job putting this together. I, I'm a huge podcast fan. So when I find ones that are in my niche, I mean, I'm super excited. But As far as my background, uh, like I said, I'm a pharmacist by training. I live in the Midwest. Uh, I actually am a drug information nerd. So I did a drug information residency right out of school. And then I uh, stayed in-house in pharmaceuticals. So we can talk a little bit about that too. But I worked for about two years on a product team uh, at Large Pharma. And then I pivoted out into the industry, into a field medical science liaison role. And I did that at Large Pharma and at Small Biotechs for about 20 years. Uh, And gosh, it's been about 18 months or so since I pivoted completely. Uh, I think that the listeners will wonder what in the world, but I pivoted to a recruiting role. Uh, And now I do career coaching and recruiting for my old job. Uh, And it's it's a lot of fun. I love talking to people that want to break into the industry. It's honestly my favorite thing to do. Uh, outside of running and spending time with my family. But anywho, thank you again for having me. Yeah, so I think that's actually a great introduction for what we wanted to talk about because you have a very unique uh, background in that you were classically trained in a medical field position like pharmacy, and you also have the know-how on the opposite end with recruiting now and coaching. And so it's a great intermix of what... uh, someone at home right now is listening to because it doesn't always apply. Either somebody was a medical provider and that's what they know and and they work on the clinical side or somebody's a recruiter and they know how to help others find and get the jobs that they want. But having the combination of the two, I think there's a lot to learn from you today. So my first question to you, just in case you at home haven't heard about MSLs yet uh, and what that job really uh consists of, can you just give us a small overview of what, uh, how you view the MSL position and how it functions within the medical? No, great question. So like I said, I actually started out internally within a pharmaceutical organization. I worked at Lilly in-house in the medical information department. So that is where if a physician or a pharmacist or any other healthcare professional 
not patients, but any healthcare professional has a question about a product, they call and you either end up getting an answer verbally or you get a letter in response. So I drafted a lot of those letters. I worked with our global colleagues to make sure our answers were consistent, uh, did a lot of that type of thing. And the MSL, it reminds me a lot of a medical information provider, but they actually are going on site uh, developing relationships with healthcare professionals in a specified territory. So if you think of a sales rep, most people that are listening to this podcast know that sales reps go out and they do educate on products uh, and they talk about, you know, whatever is in the package label. A medical science liaison reports to a different division of the pharmaceutical company. They usually report straight up to medical instead of commercial. And what that means is that you can't do any sales. It's uh, actually not legal to do it that way. And you have to stay scientifically and you have to have a balance of safety and efficacy in any of your responses. But essentially, you can answer questions about disease state or about products to physicians. So a typical medical science liaison would have a territory. So when I did it, I ha typically have either a six or a nine state territory in the Midwest. I live in a smaller area, a small city, so bigger geography. Uh, and I would go out and visit with different, we call them key opinion leaders or KOLs, uh, and develop relationships with them, talk again about disease state, about our drugs, uh, answer any questions. And uh, then, you know, there's a lot of different things you can do, uh, advisory boards and so on and so forth. We can get into that. But in a nutshell, you're out there and you're a conduit of information back and forth with that KOL. And it sounds to me as a pharmacist, and that's all I can speak from, that we know medical information. We know the med medicine information, and we know usually a little bit more detailed than uh, the general healthcare population uh, coming out of school. So for me, I understand this. I see this position. I say, I love relaying information. I like being the subject matter expert uh, for a specific product uh, or a disease state. But what about for those who might be uh, a PA or an NP or even a medical doctor? How might uh, they align with that same reasoning or thought cycle uh, as a pharmacist? Because it just seems to be our bread and butter as pharmacists. You know, it's funny that you asked that question, but the best, so a typical MSL team, let's say that there's 10 MSLs across the country for either a biotech or a large company. Large farm is going to have a much larger team, obviously, but let's just say there's 10. The best MSL, like the best teams typically have a balance of what you just said. PharmDs, PAs, NPs, sometimes MDs in there, uh, PhDs for sure. Uh, and I think they all play a different part. You know, I think the best MSLs use their team members. So if you had, you know, a, maybe a basic science thing, you might have to call your PhD colleague and ask them to dig into the immunology a little bit more if that's their specialty. I used to do that with one specific immunologist that was on my team when I covered biologics. Uh, maybe, you know, you'll call your NP if you're thinking, hey, I this this KOL is just very difficult. I can't really understand why he's having such a, you know, I don't understand the clinical side of practice as much. Can you describe why he might be so annoyed by X, Y, Z? You know, so it's balance. I think that 
all different backgrounds can bring something to the role that's a little bit different. But the one thing that they all have in common that makes a good MSO is really good active listening skills and excellent communication skills overall. So it seems that although sales, when we think of sales, uh, I know that's we're not talking about sales as a di- different entity, but people usually think this whole region, this whole territory that I've been given, it falls on my shoulders and that it's sink or swim. If I do well, it's really, I get a lot of the reward from it. If I don't, kind of sinks me. But when we're talking about this MSL team, it is a team approach. It's not all on your back. And I think that's probably a common misconception. Yeah, it's a good point. I mean, you definitely want to leverage the expertise of your MSO colleagues. You know, it's a little bit of it. Well, now I think a lot more people can remotely relate because you work remotely and it's a little bit of a different world. But when I was an MSL, you know, I was on the phone all the time with my coworkers across the country, just getting feedback. How are you answering this question? You know, what are you doing about this? And then you all get together at medical conferences. So it's certainly not uh, all on your shoulders. And not only do you have your other team members, you also have, you do have your commercial colleagues. You've got your folks in marketing. You've got your people that are out there in access. Uh, and you really are uh, basically working, you know, with everyone trying to get the best, you know, for your territory and for your KOLs. To expand on the the idea of maybe professional designation, I agree with you, John, that I think typically or maybe historically, I've always thought of MSL as being PhDs, PharmDs, MDs. Anecdotally, at least, because I do a lot of work with the pharmaceutical industry, I've seen so many more PAs and NPs in that role. Do you feel like there has been a shift in recent years, especially now as you're doing more recruiting? Is the field becoming more diverse? Because in psychiatry, certainly, it's one of the fields that in some cases, I think there's a majority advanced practice provider as opposed to psychiatrists. So I think you're seeing a a change in maybe the medical affairs team makeup as well. But is that something that you're seeing? Maybe more opportunity for non-physicians or non-PhDs? I'll answer that in two ways. And the first way is 100% yes. We are seeing more just different backgrounds, period, for MSL teams. However, there are still a lot of hiring managers or companies that definitely have a D degree requirement. And it is 100% uh, that is a requirement and it's no ifs, ands, or buts. So I just want to put that out there right now. If you're looking into this position and you see, you know, if you you are a PI or something like that and you see the D degree requirement, it's I have yet to see it happen where they will hire someone if they've got that in there. And it's it's deeper than you think. It's often something that the hiring manager just does not have control of. It's it's a rule. It's a policy. Uh, We can't we can't go around that. But that said, there not only are there a lot of NPs and PAs on a lot of MSL teams. There's also a lot of other industry roles. We hear about the MSL, you know, all the time, but there's clinical practice liaisons, a lot of titles around that, that uh, especially in the psychiatry space that we're seeing pop up that are more APPs and uh, they w- visit with other APPs too. So it's, there's a, there's a lot of different things out there is the bottom line. If I could, I'm going to take this a little bit different direction. So we've got, it's set that we have these specific degrees that can fit into the roles within Metafairs. So we do see a lot of folks in these areas right now feeling burnt out, 
feeling like I've been doing the same thing for a while, whether I'm in the hospital or in clinic, uh, and they don't feel like they can move. And they might see some of their uh, colleagues or friends moving into different positions, but they're still feeling stuck and they don't know how to move into industry, but they feel like maybe that's where I want to go. Where do they start? Because they're already feeling burned out. The motivation's difficult to muster. Yeah, it's it's a very, a very good question. I talk to people every day in that situation. So I think knowing that you're not alone is the first part. Uh, I think that, you know, before just getting online and starting to look at roles, just really doing that an internal search about what is going to be the right role for you. It may be an MSL role. It may not. But asking yourself, you know, the questions that you'll read in books when you're you know, trying to think about what your career step is, you know, if you ask your friends, what's your superpower, you know, ask three people and see what they actually say and get back to you. You know, what do you do better than other people? I, uh, you know, what kind of things, you know, while you are at work, do you find that you enjoy the most and time flies by? Like, those are the kind of questions to ask yourself. If you ask three friends or three colleagues and they all get back to you and say, you know what, you usually are the one that we come to to get information on new drugs. Or, you know what, if we need somebody to present to a group of students or to other pharmacists, you're the one that we call. If you start to get those kind of answers, then the MSO role might be right, good for you. If, you know, they come back and they say, you know, your writing is top notch. You're someone that we come to and we want, you know, to write the policies or to, you know, write up the drug monographs or the formulary things. Then, you know, a writing type position might be a better route for you. So what I don't want people to do is we, we never want to go into a new role because we're running from the old one. We want to go into a new role because it's the right next step. And that doesn't mean you have to do it forever. Look at me. I just pivoted to recruiting, you know. Uh, and so, you know, you might evolve over time, but you've got to really figure out where you want to go. You can't get somewhere unless you know your why. And that's going to help a lot to ask yourself those questions. And then that way, when you decide, hey, you know what? Okay, I'm going to pursue the MSL role. Then, you know, we can have a conversation and figure out how to get you started uh, which is, you know, the the steps are really to take whatever you have done as a pharmacist or whatever, you know, whatever background you have, and then showcase your transferable skills for the next role. So that's really what what we do as recruiters, as career coaches, when people decide that they want to enter industry. Sarah, you're preaching to the choir here. I throughout this podcast and this project of just trying to build out resources of career development. One of the things that I'm obsessed with is the idea that so often we feel burnt out or we feel that we don't know what the next step is because we just aren't thinking enough about having a career plan and trying to look at what is up on the horizon. What am I looking aspirationally to achieve and then making a plan to get there? So I love the idea of doing a self-assessment and saying, okay, these are the areas that I'm strong in. These are the areas of my career that I enjoy. So this is the career path that will get me to something that is maybe more meaningful and more enjoyable. So I love that. So I'd like to expand on that a little bit. If someone is looking to make a transition to a non-clinical job, they've done a self-assessment just as you recommend. 
and they've maybe identified MSL or medical informatics as their next role, what are some things that they can do as those first steps to try and build their CV towards that? Is there a path that you think is one that you see over and over again as a recruiter, you know, maybe multiple publications or sitting on various committees at the hospital? Is there some low-hanging fruit or things that people can do if they are wanting to go down that certain path towards an industry job? Yeah, I usually say there's going to always be opportunity in the job that you're in to take some ownership. Uh, So look for any opportunities to present scientific information. And again, that might be to really small groups. I don't care if it's two people. That's actually a lot of times MSLs are to one person. You know, so that type of thing is very good. Uh, Up-leveling your skills on things like PowerPoint or honestly, even Microsoft Teams or Zoom. Uh, Things like what you guys are doing where you're putting together a podcast. Uh, One of the MSLs that I recruited had a podcast and had put that together. And that's something that, you know, she was able to talk about during her interview that made her different. No, that wasn't part of her job. We have to start looking at different things that can make us stand out. Uh, So again, like that PowerPoint, a retail pharmacist might never use PowerPoint. Well, you know what? On Saturday, you can go learn how to use it. And it doesn't mean you have to be a PowerPoint expert, but just the basics and, you know, maybe you'll find that you really like it and then you can, you know, build upon that. Uh, And a lot of it is just looking for opportunities. They're out there. Uh, What other things can you do? You can attend local society meetings. So whether that's therapeutic, I know that, you know, in my city, we've got, you know, a rheumatology conference. I think it costs $25 to go to and it's on a Saturday morning. Like those kind of things, you got to put yourself out there you sign up, you go, you visit the booths, you sit through and listen to the presentations. See if you like it, you know, you might think, hey, gosh, I don't really like this any better than what I was doing. You might love it and think this is what kind of atmosphere I want to be in. But slowly but surely you start to write all those things down. Don't do it without writing it down. And you start to have a story to tell. And that will help you not just on your CV, but in the interview setting when they ask you for examples, now you'll be able to say, oh, well, in September, I attended the rheumatology symposium in my home city. I was able to hear Dr. Jones speak. And yeah, I was really enlightened by the future of biologics in the treatment of, I don't know, atopic dermatitis, you know, something like that. And you've got something to say other than just, well, yeah, I, uh, you know, I do the prescriptions and blah, blah, blah. Well, that's great. Everybody does. So if everybody's doing that, what can you do to make yourself stand apart? So it doesn't always have to be something that is extremely clinical or presenting to a grand round, something that we we always boost these things so high um, that we think that's unattainable. I can't do that. It could be as simple as just attending a conference, understanding that, um, that industry a bit more, maybe that specific product a bit more so that you can go to this interview and say, no, I, I'm actually involved in the community. I went to these events or I've talked to these MSLs. It doesn't have to be that you're presenting to these large groups. No, it definitely does not. And the thing that I want to add to it is there's no direct path. I mean, there's really two things that if you don't, if you take anything away from this entire podcast, there's no direct path to becoming an MSL. It's not 
believe me, it's not a certificate. Like it's not a certificate. You don't get a certificate and then that helps you get an MSL role. It doesn't work that way. And maybe it will in five years, but that's not how it is in 2023. Uh, and then the second thing I really want to get across is it's not easy. Uh, and I know that it wasn't easy to get through pharmacy school. So, you know, people can relate to that. But if you go into it realizing, you know what, this is going to be super difficult and I'm going to have some, you know, things in my way. Uh, I knew when I was in pharmacy school that I wanted to go into industry and I live in the Midwest, like I mentioned earlier, and my school, it, there wasn't another person in my class that wanted to go the industry route. So I had to go to my pre, like the, what I guess it would have been the dean at the time. I went to school a long time ago, but, uh, and I said, hey, I found, uh, you know, some, a plan. I, I think I want to try to get to FDA. This is early on. And she's like, she had no idea what I was talking about. And so I had to do some public health uh, service things. I went and uh, I did an internship at the prison camp one summer. So then if you do that, then you're supposed to be able to get FDA internship the next summer. I didn't get it, you know, and I was really disappointed. I was like, well, now what am I going to do? Because, you know, well, you know what? I was able to do a rotation. So I got that instead of the internship. So that got me at least something to put on my CV at that point. Uh, and then, you know, went and did a residency. And throughout my industry career, I mean, I think everybody that ever broke in can say, like, it wasn't a direct path. You're going to have some ups and some downs, and you're going to have a lot of highs and lows. And sometimes the lows are pretty low, uh, but you just got to keep going. One of the things that's sticking out to me in that story is, I think, the value of networking. And this is a recurrent theme from people that we've talked to that so often what seems to be the common theme that drives that next step in someone's career is being persistent, forging your own path, but also talking to a lot of people and making those connections. So as we talked about, MSLs may be a great example because it's a very, very difficult field to break into. I'd love to hear your thoughts on the value of networking and maybe what you see as a path towards effective networking. Because my worry with networking is that the the counter to it or the flip side is that if people are so focused on making new connections that they may have a lot of very surfacey professional connections that don't necessarily advance them in their career, but rather they're just the guy that always goes to the dinners and always is at the happy hours, but not necessarily the person that they think of for that next career role. So I'd love your thoughts on, on networking and maybe what effective networking looks like. Yeah, it's such a good question. I love it. So I think the first thing we'll say about networking is that you've got to look at it as true networking and not just to get a job. <laughs> so you're building a network for your career, not just to break into industry or to get the next MSL job. If you go into it with that, I guarantee you're going to have a lot more success and the people that you network with are going to be much more receptive. Uh, I can't tell you how many messages I get on a daily basis where it's, and I know that the other MSLs do because they tell me this, where it's, can you help me get the job? Uh, and and that's not networking, you know, and it, I understand where people are going at. They're thinking that it is, but you've got to go at networking as learning about the other person, learning about what well, you guys asked at the very beginning, you know, tell me about like the MSL role. That's the kind of questions that you want to ask on a networking call. You know, what's, what, you know, what are some of your greatest accomplishments? What are some of the things you're most proud of? And you're slowly but surely going to learn the characteristics that make 
you know, a good MSL or a good medical information associate or whatever it might be. I I would say that you're exactly right as far as numbers go too. It's not the most the person with the most connections. We want really purposeful networking, uh, and you want to try to reach out to people that have something in common with you. You know, maybe they're from your school, maybe they're uh, in your therapeutic area, or you know, the same chain that you work in. Some some commonality that you can bring to it. Uh, you're going to have a lot more success that way as well. You and I actually, I, and I'm not saying that, I, I think networking can develop as a skill. Uh, last summer, you and I spoke on the phone and we had, I think about an hour conversation. And again, I'm going to relay the fact that I wasn't the best at it at this point, but I was learning. I did ask a lot of specific questions about what it w- looks like on even the recruiter side, what um, your experience was as an MSL, where you came from. Um, what other companies are looking for, what type of person, uh, personality they want, and also what certificates they want. Trying to get the the big picture rather than just say, Sarah, can you do you have any jobs for me? Like anything you can look at. Let's not be looking through Indeed and LinkedIn and see. Maybe you're in cardiac. You see a cardiac, and like I know that I'm going to go right for cardiac every single time it comes up. Um, but I won't reach out to those people ahead of time. Like, I'm just going to wait for something to post, reach out to the hiring manager, and try to start that conversation. These conversations should already be happening. You should already have established relationships in that field, in that industry, or maybe even within that company. You've already been talking to these people so that when it's time to apply, you already have that built up behind you. Don't, you don't have to make up time before the application closes. Yeah, that, that's going to be ideal. I mean, that is your ideal situation that you can reach out to someone and ask them for a referral because you already have that relationship in place. I do want to tell you guys, uh, I mean, and the listeners that if people get jobs from directly applying to positions themselves and not just a referral. So there's all this talk about networking and I teach the people that I work with how to do networking and I'm a big believer in it. But I also don't want people to think that it's the end all be all like you can get a job if you are the right person for the job and you send in your CV and it is tailored to the position and it looks like, you know, you've got the skills and the skill set for it. And you're a good interviewer and you have practiced and you just have the, again, the skills for the job. You'll get the job with or without a referral. I think that that's a great reminder A, because it's encouraging to people that may be wanting to break into this that, yes, you should continue to to be persistent, continue to apply because you never know. But also that one of the best ways to seek new opportunity, I think, as a clinician is to find an area that you're really passionate about and just excel, become excellent at it. And for me, I've, I've been approached a couple times for MSL roles in I decided I'm just not ready to leave patient care. I really love patients and I I didn't want to move away from that just yet. But one of the reasons they approached me was because of clinical work that I'm doing and an area of psychiatry that I've become quite adept in. So I agree. One of the things that you can do if you're looking to, to make the transition is also even just look at your clinical role, even if it's something where you're burned out or something that you maybe don't get a ton of joy out of. Find that area of clinical medicine 
that you feel you're maybe better than your peers or maybe is something that just comes really naturally to you and lean into that because I, I totally agree with you. I think one of the best things that we can do is just be excellent in any endeavor that we pursue. Because I've got a heart for pharmacists and I've worked in clinical and non-clinical and I'm currently working some retail too, uh, this is a difficult time for pharmacists in particular. Uh, of course, not to discount anybody else in clinical following COVID, uh, but among all these talks about walkouts and labor issues and those feelings of being burned out, uh, there are there's somebody listening right now who feels as though they have been just working themselves to the bone, and then when they leave, they're just that they just feel like they can't really do anything more. How does somebody in a position like that? find or uh, curate the motivation uh, to move forward or, or what can they do in these retail positions even to say like, yeah, I had this history, but I there's nothing I can do right now. I'm just trying to get these prescriptions filled and out because that's what my time demands of me. What do they do? Is it mostly outside of work then? Yeah, I'm going to talk about the time outside of work because I think that, I mean, during the day, you can certainly find different ways, whether you're helping people with OTCs, whether you're, you know, learning more about the new drugs that you're covering, uh, you know, you're documenting any conversations that you have with physicians on the phone or, or insurance companies. Those kind of things all count. You just need to keep track of what type of conversations you're having. I'm talking more in-depth conversations, you know. And what kind of impact you're having? Are you, you know, are you mentoring junior pharmacists? Uh, I said I was going to talk about this. I'm outside of work, but I'll I'll address this first. You know, those the, you know, look for different things, any kind of relationship building things you can do uh, during the day. So, um, but I'm going to address the outside of work because I said I would, uh, and that is. I'm going to say most likely everybody that's listening to this that, you know, let's say you're a retail pharmacist, you probably have Netflix. Like, right? I mean, or you're doing something like that, okay? And if you really want to change your life, you got to change your habits and you're going to have to really change things. And what's not going to bring you more energy is going home and sitting on the couch and watching Netflix. It's actually going to suck more life out of you than, than you realize, even though it might feel good at the time. Like, it's not going to pay off. And, you know, we have so much, we have a lot of layoffs in industry too. We've got layoffs in pharmacy. We've got healthcare professionals burned more than ever, but we also have an explosion of opportunity out there right now where you can learn anything on the internet. You can literally pull up YouTube and I don't know how you guys learned how to do a podcast. When I did mine, I literally just watched YouTube videos and it was free. And yeah, so, you know, the world is your oyster. I tell my kids that I'm going to tell the listeners that like get go to Barnes and Noble, get a couple books or get some off the Internet and learn something because you'll feel so much better if you are learning something like learn something new every day for 30 days. And you'll be surprised at the end of 30 days how much better you feel. So I, I want to speak to that a bit then when we did first start off. It was, I mean, it still is outside of our work hours, completely outside of my work hours. We weren't making any money at all for quite a while. And even the money that we make now with some of our contracts goes right back into what we're doing. So we're not making a ton from this, but what we have found is that 
the conversations that we can have because of the platform of, of podcasting allows these type of conversations and with many other experts in many different fields. Now, you mentioned first that it's going to take a lot of work. It is hard. It is difficult. And I think this is a perfect representation of it. And you with your podcast, uh, you will need to hit asphalt. You will need to grind. And amidst all the hustle culture that we're in, and a lot of people are kind of putting that down saying, let's not hustle so much. Let's make sure that our work and our life is balanced. Um, we should push back against that a little bit and say, no, if you want to be happier, especially in your career, you're going to have to go through some hardships and it might be time away from Netflix. It might even be time away from a, a healthy habit and it will take time away from family. We know this. So I, I just want to tell you listening at home um, that it's not always easy, but the reward when the reward comes feels so much greater than just pushing out a bunch of resumes and hoping one sticks because you do have motion, you do have traction, you have small results because I think that when you have a lot of effort putting in to uh, low return uh, actions like the resume building, you just feel like nothing's ever grabbing. You have to have these small little wins. Um, and you were mentioning OTC products or educating people for the retail pharmacist listening, how many times do you have a patient coming up and asking you a very specific question about their drug? Um, does this, uh, can this change my, my liver levels, my ALT? Yes, it's, we, don't, we don't know. You're going to go look it up. You're going to find all the information on it. And all of a sudden, you have much more information about a specific drug that you could probably do a presentation on. I mean, it's there. Or maybe you have to talk to a physician about why they're okay with the drug interaction that is clearly stating a severe interaction and you don't feel comfortable feeling it. Well, that's a clinical interaction that you had with a physician level that was all clinical based. Like that is a win. It doesn't have to be huge. It could be something small like this. So I'm inspired. Sarah, I want to ask you this question based on John's uh, soliloquy over there. I'd love to get your comments on discipline versus hustle culture, because I think you're right. The The average American has, it's like four to five hours of TV watching time or social media scrolling per day. So there's clearly time in the day that if we want to advance our careers, if we want to be productive, we have the ability to do it without making sacrifices of things that are really meaningful. But the flip side to that is success does come at a cost. I'm a big believer of that. Like John said, there is family cost. There's maybe uh, sacrifice of hobbies or lifestyle if you're pursuing that next career goal. So I'd love your thoughts on that just because it sounds like you you have some maybe interesting perspective on discipline versus hustle culture and where it flips or where that balance is to make sure that we're not all becoming workaholics as we're looking to achieve in advance. Yeah. I mean, my personal perspective is that, you know, work-life balance is not really a thing. So I don't know if you guys have heard of that before, but like I believe in the term work-life alignment a lot more. And there's going to be times where, you know, one is more than the other. And if you try to achieve balance, you're going to constantly be frustrated because you're never going to have it. Uh, and there's times where your career is going to need more. And there's times where your kids are going to need more. I've got three kids. When my kids were littler, uh, they were uh, a little or younger. Uh, <laughs> 
they they were my 100% focus and I was much less career driven. Now that they're a little bit older, I can put more into my career. So I, you know, aligning my values with that, I think matters. I, but still, you know, even if you're with like me and have kids, you know, kids learn and they, they watch you. And if you are really frustrated with your career and that's going to come home with you and you're not going to be happy, uh, they, you can't say to your kid, like you can be anything that you want to be, you know, Johnny, and you should really try hard in school and learn everything you can. If you're coming home and frustrated and sighing, complaining about work and not doing anything about it. And it's harsh to hear, but it's true. I get calls every day, Sarah, I don't know what to do. And I think the answer to that is you've got to do something. And I, I mean, people are listening to this podcast, so you're doing something. Keep going. Keep doing it. Do something else. Add something onto that. And, you know, uh, discipline's a hard thing. But if you can stack little things onto other things, if you already listen to this podcast, add one more thing after you do the podcast. Maybe you write down a couple goals afterwards, you know, and just stack that on top it will pay off. And I'm not saying you can never watch Netflix. I sound like I'm the least fun person ever. Uh, but, you know, it is true exactly what you said. Four to five hours of TV a day, you're not going to get too much else. You know, nobody's going to come get your goals for you. And I think that's another thing I tell candidates is, is you're in charge of your own career path. Uh, and you've got to decide if you're going to take ownership over it. You know, it, it's up to you. Nobody's going to help you through it. You know, and or people will help you, but nobody can do it for you. All right, if I may, uh, at the risk of sounding negative, I don't want anybody to take this as negative, but when you are talking to so many candidates um, as a recruiter, I'm hoping that maybe you can give us uh, a little taste of how you would view somebody who is ill-prepared, underprepared, or maybe even mistakes that uh, common candidates make when trying to get into these positions. Oh, such a good question. I actually have something in my LinkedIn message today of a candidate that reached out and he says, oh my gosh, I think I ruined everything. You know, I went into my presentation and I just bombed it. You know, so I think that happens a lot because people don't realize when they make it to the presentation phase exactly what pharma is looking for. It is a little bit of a different uh, phase. Uh, so that would be one that, you know, as you get further along, that's where a lot of the candidates get screened out. I... Uh, I mean, if we're not talking resumes and we're talking like the initial interviews, lack of preparation, uh, definitely I had another person that she's HIV pharmacist and I was surprised she hadn't gotten a job yet, but she said, yeah, I, I got this interview with, I won't say what company it is, but she's like, I thought that I was more familiar with their drug and I didn't really do my homework before the interview. I mean, so you've got to know what the company's pipeline is, what their values are, just the basics that you can get off the website before before even your first interview. The interview is not there like a time for them to share about the product. So those are the biggest things. And then I mean, the other things I ramble. I love to talk. I mean, that that one comes up a lot. You know, they they didn't have a elevator pitch that was short and sweet. You know, those are all things that we can work on. That, you know, interviews, interviewing isn't something we do often. So it's something we have to practice. I, I think it's a good point because I did uh, career coaching. Um, I completed that earlier this year. And that was the first thing that was brought up that was necessary was that elevator speech. I can't tell you how much time. I might have been two sessions on getting that concise, short, and explaining exactly what you want to explain that gets who you are across in a small time. Like 
that takes practice. And you talk, and I think it's funny because you were talking about how we should ask our friends and family what our top three best uh, attributes are of ourselves, and that can be awkward for for people. Um, I think the same as standing in front of a mirror and saying it over and over again to get it right. It's awkward, um, and it actually might even demotivate you listening at home saying, I'm, I know I'm not going to do that. The expert here is telling you that that is helpful and it will get you more familiar with how to express who you are to others, even if it's outside of an interview. Yeah. I'll, I ask the question a lot of times and I'll get, uh, you know, like, tell me about yourself. That's how I start my, you know, phone screens and they kind of, yeah, I will. They're like, oh, here we go. So, yeah, it's got to be, like you said, it's a practice thing that uh, takes a lot of refinement. I would like maybe one concise, wrapped up um, picture of what you want somebody to take home today and say, if you got that one thing, you did mention that earlier in the podcast, if you took one thing away, but holistically, anybody who just feels like they're stuck in a position and they want to move on with their career, what's one great takeaway that you would uh, impress everybody. Yeah, I think that if you're listening to this, you are most likely a high performer and you've gotten, you know, you got through school, you got through pharmacy school or PA school, whatever you, you know, you, you're achievement oriented and you've had a lot of positive success. And I think I grew up this way that we were chasing success, right? And achievements and you get attention, you get rewards and you get pats on the back for everything that you've done right. Uh, if you really want to progress in your career, you're going to have to hit some no's and you're going to, again, hit some lows. So you're going to get some rejections and learning to deal with that. And you've got to look at them and figure out, like you said, you know, like maybe it's to tell me about yourself. Maybe it's your presentation, whatever it is figure out how to get a little bit better that time, but you have to bounce back quickly. I, I know there's a lot of people that throw their resume out, interview once, don't get it, and then they quit because they, you know, well, that must not be right for me. You know, most likely if you've never gotten rejected for a job before, then you're not shooting like high enough. You know, you're just staying with the status quo because it's, you know, easy and not necessarily easy because it's a difficult job, but like, you know, because you don't want someone to feel, you don't want to feel rejection. It's hard. Uh, but, you know, that that's how you really will get true fulfillment if you force yourself to go after the big things and they're okay if it takes you a little bit to get there. Well, Sarah, that's all just amazing. I, I love these interviews where I think ideology ends up being very similar. It's it's always so fun for John and I when we interview someone and we just find ourselves emphatically nodding along. So thank you for coming on. This was great. I don't know if you've heard any of other uh, other episodes, but we always like to finish with a personal item. And the reason we do that is healthcare can be all consuming and we like to retain some of our humanity to finish the show. So we can go around and just maybe give a, a personal item of something you're reading, something you're eating, drinking, some fun adventure. If you'd like to, you can go first. Otherwise, John and I can go and maybe give you a chance to think of something since we're putting you on the spot. Yeah, I, I'm happy to share. I actually have something new. It's called an aura ring. So that's my personal item right now that I am using. I don't know if you have you guys heard of it before. This is a healthcare professional podcast. I've had it for about 10 days. It's pretty sweet. Uh, I already have like the Apple Watch for activity tracking and stuff, but this tracks my sleep and some other things. I can't 100% say it's the most accurate, but uh, so far, 
uh, for the listeners, it gives you a readiness score. It tells you, you know, your stress levels, that kind of stuff. It's pretty sweet. So I'll, I'll be anxious to continue to follow it, but that's something new I'm trying. Uh, I'll tag off of that. Um, just a little mention. I started using an app called Rise Sleep, um, and I've talked about ADHD a few times on the podcast. And something I found is that, and Mike is going to roll his eyes and say, I've told you this a million times, but sleep on how important it is for mental health. And especially if we're talking about grit and we're talking about perseverance, things like this, you need that energy. And so what I've noticed is that it'll tell us what time you should go to sleep if you want the best start to the day, what time you should get up, what your best working hours are based on what your patterns are. And I found that to be extremely helpful to make sure that I'm block scheduling things that I need done at the right time and knowing where I'm going to dip in the day. So this technology really does help uh, folks like us who are in many different places all the time. Uh, but moving on to my little personal item is, and I'm I'm wondering if anybody's listening right now that I knew from, a, from being a child, but I never grew up with cats. We have cats now and they stay outside and kill all our voles and moles in our garden. But I have uh, taken it upon myself to make my own little cat scratch tower full with the hammock thing in it with an old rug. And see, he's giggling because this is not who I am. Uh, but uh, success because the cat loves it. And he goes, she's out there with me as I was woodworking. So, uh, yeah, I I won't post that though because it's too embarrassing. Perfect. (laughs) Well, my personal item is a quasi personal, quasi work item, but I guess we'll allow it because you enjoy it. Yeah. So you go. So I I think we may have talked about this previously. I can't remember our off air versus on air conversations, but in two weeks, I'm giving um, a couple lectures at the New York State NAMI conference, which will be very fun. I'm excited. And they offered to buy me a train ticket as opposed to driving. So of course I said yes, because my inner child is like riding a train. Yeah, that sounds fun. So I'm actually going to pull my five, my seven-year-old and my nine-year-old out of school Friday. And we're going to all take the train I'm taking them with because they're old enough that they can hang out in the hotel for an hour while I give my presentation. So it's a, a really exciting weekend for me, but also for them because they also think that riding the train is the coolest thing ever. And we're going to do, you know, breakfast and dinner on the train in the dining car. And it's a really fun workation. As Sarah, you're talking about work-life alignment instead of work-life balance, where it's a work trip. I'm going to give some presentations, but I'm now reaching the point of parenting where my kids are old enough that they can tag along and we're going to make it a really fun adventure. So I'm really looking forward to that, even though it is work and maybe not a personal item, but my kids are uh, ecstatic the idea of riding the train. So Sarah, where can our listeners find you as we wrap up? Is there anywhere that's a good place for them to to find you or reach out to you if they wanted to connect? Sure. They can find me on LinkedIn. So it's Sarah Snyder right on LinkedIn. That's the best place to find me. Excellent. And we'll include the link for your LinkedIn on our on our show notes. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for coming on. As I said earlier, this was just amazing. We really love talking to to people that are in the know. And certainly we continue to love hearing further reinforcement that networking, that determination, discipline, these are all things that we're hopefully continuing to hammer home for our audience. So I, I greatly appreciate you adding your voice to to our audience and hopefully continuing to motivate and encourage them. For everyone listening, we're White Coats of the Round Table. If you like what you hear, consider leaving us a review. If you don't like what you hear, 
definitely don't review us. Until next week, this is Mike and John, and thank you, Sarah. Have a great week, everybody. Thank you.